Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, the podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. We all know how tough it can be to find a service provider of good quality, whether it be a mechanic, a babysitter, a speech pathologist, or an ABA provider. Finding the right match is about so many different factors, including availability, rapport, relatability, experience as well. One of the main focuses for an ABA provider is quality. And until recently, there hasn't been a way for us to measure quality when it comes to an agency. That's why Sarah Litvak founded the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, the BHCOE, which is the only ABA-specific accrediting body. Today, you'll hear us talk about some of the key factors that they find are important and their process for identifying BHCOE-approved agencies. I hope you learn a lot from this conversation with Sarah Litvak. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. So for a lot of people, I think they're in and around the the area of ABA and and they're familiar with a lot of aspects of it, but they may not be familiar with the BHCOE. Can you share a bit about about the accreditation and sort of all the process? Sure. Um, Well, so the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, we are an international accrediting body. And we were created to specifically meet the needs of the ABA community. Um, Our requirements for accreditation go through regular review. So we are ANSI accredited um, and we rely on that to kind of guide how we create standards and what those criteria are. Um, And our mission as an organization is really to transform the way that person-centered behavioral health care is delivered. Um, So we do that by establishing performance standards, and our goal is really to increase access to quality care and also be an example of what community collaboration looks like. So through that, we kind of hope that we can push forward safe and effective and equitable health care for patients that need it. There's a lot there that I want to dive into, but um, bef- before we get into all of it, I want to talk a bit about quality care. When you're, when, when you're saying that that's a focus, tell us more about what that means. Sure. So I think it's no surprise that um, quality should be at the forefront of any conversation around healthcare. From a broader mm-hmm. perspective, the spend on healthcare has increased exponentially in the last 20 years. Um, And that's something that I think um, every sector is dealing with, not necessarily just um, just the, you know, applied behavior analysis um, field. Um, And so in that regard, um, a lot of what we do is figuring out what makes patients improve when they're receiving ABA therapy. And there's a lot of components to that. It's the way that the parent feels, right? The person who's kind of involved in the treatment and thinking about the patient's reported outcomes. There's a lot about the staff and how the staff interact with the patients and the training they receive and the credentials that they have. Um, and then there's also the, the kind of organization as a system itself, um, because clinicians don't work in a vacuum. They work under an organization. Usually they're employed by an organization. And so 
there's a number of factors that the organization needs to be looking at to ensure that they're encouraging quality care with their staff as well. So a lot of what we do as an organization is we measure things across all those domains to understand what contributes to patients improving over time. And so what, when someone is BHCOE accredited, what does that mean? And what is the process to become accredited? Yeah, it's um, it, so that's a, a really good question. And, you know, I'll start by saying that um, accreditation means a similar thing across different industries. So typically accreditation just means that you as an organization has met um, certain requirements that are predetermined by a third party organization. Um, and so accreditation uh, for BHCOE specifically means that um, BHCOE has established our standards of excellence, which we believe reflect best practice in applied behavior analysis. And then we also developed ways in which we measure that. Um, and so we use a multimodal approach to measuring quality. And we do that via a variety of factors. So we survey patients that receive care and understand how ha happy they are. We survey the staff that work at an organization and understand you know, factors that contribute to them being happy and kind of turnover and things like that. And then we also do random interviews of patients and staff. We do direct observation of session to understand those quality, um, quality indicators. We do a document review, we meet with leadership. Um, and then we rinse and repeat. So we don't just, you know, provide an accreditation decision and never see that organization again. We have regular conformance reviews and then also are checking back in on a regular cadence to make sure that things uh, don't change. Um, and then on a broader perspective, from a broader perspective, accreditation typically shows that you meet those level of um, standards that are outlined by that accreditor, but it also means that you're, you're committed to continuous improvement. So it's not to say that any organization is perfect, but it means that the organization has, has systems in place to measure how they're behaving and measure what's going well or not going well. Um, and I think the other important part is that BHCOE is an accreditor. Um, we stand really strongly behind this idea of impartiality. So, um, you know, we make sure that um, when we evaluate, we do it objectively and that can, it's like kind of free from any, any undue pressure that could compromise the integrity of how, how we evaluate. I didn't realize there were so many layers into that. I mean, I, I knew that there was a, a process and I just, I guess I just didn't realize that it included, I mean, you listed eight or 10 different steps. That's, that's significant. I think that's something to pay attention to for people, right? That this isn't just like, oh, I mailed in a piece of paper and I got back a certificate. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely not just, you know, answer a bunch of questions and we'll let you know what we think about it. It's a little bit deeper than that. Um, and I'd, I'd say a lot deeper than that. Um, but I also think it's important to note that that always wasn't the case, right? As an accreditor, um, we really have to meet the field where it's at. And when we started BHCOE, um, we did document review. We did do surveys. So back then we did still survey patients and staff and we did do on-site reviews. Um, but as we've grown, we've continued to add on and evolve and really um, assess the way we evaluate and make sure is what we're me measuring um, important. And then if we don't, if it's not important, why are we measuring it? And so we've removed things over the years and then we've added things in as well, especially as insurance funding has increased. Um, but yeah, the idea is that you're, we're kind of leaning on semi-structured interviews, surveys, direct observation, and document review, and all of those meet best practices for um, evaluation methodology. So we try and follow best practices there. What, what were people doing before the BHCOE? I mean, how was, how was quality measured before that? Or was that a big part of the catalyst for, for this creation? Yeah, I think 
this was a huge catalyst. Um, if you've heard anything about BHCOE, you've probably heard me tell this story. So if you've heard it, you know, fast forward 30 seconds. Um, but if you haven't, um, BHCOE was formed out of a, um, a challenge that happened in the state of California back in 2009, in which a large organization went out of business and left a number of consumers without care. And so the state put together a transparency committee to try and measure quality because it largely wasn't being measured at the time. And so, um, you know, I spent a, a number of years working on that project. And then when that project got defunded, we did go to the state and ask, it, ask if we could continue that work. And that's how BHCOE formed. So even though we're going on our seventh year, we really were working on this for five years prior. So it's been, you know, over, over 10 years at this point that we've been honing our evaluation methodology. But I think on a broader level, um, ABA wasn't funded so heavily. So, so most of the people who were receiving ABA were upper middle class families who could afford it because they had to pay out of pocket. And you had these smaller provider, you know, these niche providers who were really specialized in applied behavior analysis. So I'd argue that quality maybe wasn't as big as a of a challenge back then. But then once funding became more readily and providers started flooding into the market, you know, this example I use all the time is it's easier in most states to open an ABA organization than it is to open a nail salon um, in terms of the regulation restrictions wow. that exist. Um, and so that really scared me because I was thinking about this idea that like I look on Yelp to understand, you know, how good my hamburger is going to be at a restaurant, but I have no idea how good my child's therapy is going to be. Um, and so there really needed to be some external third party independent organization that was doing this. Um, that was coming at it from all facets, like what's important to the patient, what's important to autistic people to ensure their humility, their, you know, their dignity and things like have cultural humility and how we do it. Um, but then also what's important to payers and providers, but also something that's not necessarily guided by providers or, or, or the other way where it's guided just by what patients want, right? Because sometimes those two can be disconnected. Um, we really try and serve as a neutral third party that looks at all of those stakeholders. Right. And sometimes finding that balance can be part of the struggle, right? Sometimes I imagine that's part of the, the challenge for everyone involved. Yeah. But, you know, the good part is that's why we have our ANSI accreditation. So we're accredited as an American national standard developer. And ANSI actually requires us to have a commission, which is a group of stakeholders that work together to really develop and evaluate the standards. And we do it via like you know, this is kind of lingo, but it's a transparent consensus-based process. So all stakeholders, stake, all of our meetings are open to the public. So anyone can attend the way in which we set standards. Um, and the commission has to be made up of diverse people. And we also have to make sure that they all agree the standards make sense. And if they don't, we can't launch those standards. Um, we also have to open our public comment for 45 days per regulation. Um, so it's not just a, you know, like a, a gesture, like having it open for 10 days, like, you know, and don't really tell anyone about it. Like we have to blast it. There's requirements around like making sure it gets to all the right people. Um, so thankfully that allows us to really gain consensus and we've been able to do that, which is really fun. That's so great. I mean, it's, it sounds like I can imagine some of those meetings where not everyone has a uh, buy-in, but I, I, I encourage people to check them out, right? Be a part of it. Listen, pay attention, see what's, what's happening. I want to go yeah. back to, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, they're really fun because you rarely get all those people in a room to talk about things and the conversations can be really animated. Right. I want to go back to something that uh, you were bringing up and you touched on this a little bit, but the parent piece of this, right? The, the parent of the 
consumer of ABA, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. What what should families be paying attention to, and how can they tell if an organization is quality or not? Yeah, so I would say that if you're a parent listening to this, um, I'm sure it's no secret that it's it's really challenging to find an ABA provider right now. A lot of organizations have wait lists. Um, a lot of the time, um, you're kind of just trying to figure out like who can take me now, and that's who I'll go with. Um, and so, you know, the first place that I would always suggest that you start is try and uh, look at the accreditation directory that we have on our website, because that will at least give you a sense of organizations that have really committed to the process and are um, measuring a lot of those things. Um, it's not always the case that you can find an accredited provider, and that's okay, too. But I think that typically when we look at um, what quality looks like, we're looking at a number of different things. So there's some questions you can ask around the staff and kind of the the level of education those staff members have and the type of training they have. So I think that's a big one is asking them questions that kind of mirror some of the things that we ask them, like, you know, how do you train your your, your therapist? Um, And what you want to hear is that they have a robust training of some sort and that they're continuously monitoring them and they have feedback loops. Um, You also want to ask them about their caseload. So I think that's a big one as well is, you know, are you insure, are you going to, are you going to be forgotten in the process because the supervisor who might be working with your child has too many children that they're attending to? Um, I think that's a big one as well. Um, you know, I think the other piece too, is kind of understanding, um, some, some areas around the intake process. I think, a lot of the times um, organizations focus so much on the clinical component, but the intake process is so important for a parent and that really solidifies the experience you're going to have. So I would keep your eyes open as well during that intake process. Are they responsive? Are they telling you upfront what to expect from treatment? Are they telling you upfront what you're going to have to pay to, uh, to receive treatment if you have insurance or not, like co-pays, things like that. A lot of times those red flags can exist before you even meet your therapist. Um, And I think that's really, really important. Let's say all of that goes well. You ask all those questions, you get through the intake process, and then you start receiving therapy. I think what you want to make sure of is that your voice is heard throughout therapy. Um, The way that I always recommend approaching this and the way when I used to work with, with, with kids, I would always say, you are the expert in your child. I'm the expert in behavior analysis. And so only together can really, we achieve the results that we need. And so as a parent, your voice matters so much and you want to work with someone who's incorporating you into the process Um, That's making sure that if you have priorities that would make your life and your child's life better, that they're integrating that. So I think that collaboration piece is really important. Um, There's so many things to look for, but I think those are the the kind of top couple that I would suggest you think through. Yeah, I think the intake piece of it is so important. I mean, I, you know, that's a big part of my role on a day-to-day basis. And I, we talk to so many families who are in crisis mode in the moment. They maybe have just received a diagnosis and they don't know what to do. And there are so many people who are calling and don't necessarily live in an area where we provide services, but they're looking for help and they just don't know where to go. And so I think to your point, Sarah, that that intake piece is one that sticks out in my mind of how everyone can be supporting the community. Absolutely. And I think also when you think about today's world post-COVID, um, you know, I would encourage parents to, to consider telehealth as an option as well while you're waiting for treatment. If you do have a preference to be in person or in the home or in the center, 
telehealth still is such a powerful tool that exists, even though COVID seems to have really gone away for all intents and purposes. Um, but that's right. also something to consider. Right, right. You know, I, I want to go back to something you said very early on, um, and you were talking about um, parent participation and satisfaction, but also patient satisfaction um, and, and the role that those two play in quality. Can you explain a little bit more of your, your thoughts on that? Sure. So um, in, in kind of the quality literature, there's been a big movement, and I talked about this term earlier about um, care being patient-centered or person-centered. Um, and the idea, you know, the layman's idea is just that even if you're providing really great, high quality clinical care, if the patient or the, you know, the caregiver of the patient doesn't perceive that care to be quality, it doesn't matter. Um, and so this idea is really that, you know, as clinicians, let's say you're trained and to provide just this really wonderful care but you're not building rapport and you're not engaging in reflection of your actions against the others. You're not adjusting to the patient's culture, things like that. The parent or patient may not necessarily receive all those benefits that you're investing in because they're not um, necessarily connected back to the individual who's receiving care. Um, and so I think a lot of what we do is look to see whether that's there and then also measure what we call patient reported outcomes. So not only is the patient improving over whatever assessment you're using um, or whatever tool you're using to measure severity or measure, um, you know, measure um, reduction of symptoms, um, you also want to look to see whether the patient perceives that. And that's called the patient reported outcome or a pro. And so a lot of what we're doing as well on the accreditation side is ensuring that providers are measuring that and that the patient voice is heard. Now, I feel like in this most recent conversation, I'm kind of interchanging the patient with the parent. Um, and I think that's because a lot of the patients that we work with in this population aren't verbal or may not necessarily have the means to communicate their satisfaction. Um, and so oftentimes that does end up falling on the parent. Um, and I do think it's important that if you do have, that, that the parent kind of serves as the um, conduit to the patient's experience, but also as that patient in, grows and kind of matures, that they still have a voice in their treatment care as well and are included in their own planning. Um, and that's something that's quite important as well. I like that term that like the parent would be the, the conduit for the voice of the, you know, autistic individual or whomever may be receiving the, the therapy. I think in some ways that kind of goes back to parents being advocates for their children, right? Or for those that are in their care. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially with um, this idea that I think autistic people should have a voice in the treatment they receive and how they receive it. Um, and sometimes the manner in which applied behavior analysis is delivered uh, may not necessarily leave long-term impact on the patient in a way that we, we, we may have wanted to. And so I think the parent should certainly be the conduit to that until the patient can. Um, and it's important that we capture that as soon as the patient is available too. Yeah, it's so important. I, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm reflecting back on my career as you're having, as we're having this conversation. And um, certainly I was around at the time, um, I wasn't with that agency, but I was around at the time where that uh, agency in California, um, the story you shared earlier. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about all the ways that the, the field has changed and really 
giving a lot of individuals with autism the opportunity to share their voice and be heard more and have an mm -hmm. opportunity to say and advocate for themselves. Um, is that, is, are you noticing that as well? Is that something that's coming with the quality indicators you're describing? Is that, is that kind of the next wave or? I think so. I also think if you, um, you know, have heard of kind of this neurodiversity movement, I think there has been a movement just like we've seen in, you know, regular diversity conversations um, to kind of honor and respect different um, levels of, you know, functioning as well. Um, and so in that, that that's kind of the neurodiversity movement. And so I think that has really been a large topic of conversation. I also think there's been a number of autistic individuals who kind of reflected on their experience with ABA and have also felt that, um, you know, it may not have necessarily been handled in a way that's humane or in a way that respects their dignity. And I think those voices need to be heard and amplified. Um, and I know we've, we've done a lot of sessions to amplify those voices at BHCOE, but also make sure that that's reflected in our standards. And we actually released a set of diversity, inclusion, and equity standards, um, section B of our standard set, that really gets at how to ensure that's happening. That's great. That's great. What are, um, what are some of the, I'm thinking about quality and how it seems like it should be everyone's number one focus. And that is, that's obviously easier to say than to do for, I think, a lot of the field. What are some of the barriers that you've recognized as you've been working with agencies or some of the challenges that people struggle with or that agencies struggle with, I should say? I think the largest barrier for almost any organization right now is uh, just the staffing and labor shortage. And I think on a broader level, um, independent of the fact that that shortage, you know, really started happening with the COVID wave, even prior to that, there were so many um, individuals with autism who need care with ABA therapy and not enough clinicians to serve them. And so I think just the supply demand balance is off. And so that makes it really challenging for parents to really get the care they need, but also makes it really challenging for organizations who have, you know, wait list around the block and only so many staff to serve them. And so I think a lot of the times when I do think about quality and some of the barriers, it's, you know, I, I talked about caseload earlier and the idea that, well, you know, caseload should be X, Y, or Z, but maybe if we increase the caseloads a little bit, we can get more patients in the door and help more, more children. But then the, the trade-off is, is, is good therapy, is, is bad therapy just as good as no therapy? Um, or is bad therapy just as good as good therapy? And so really trying to understand the nuances around that. Um, so I think that the, the labor shortage is a, is a big um, a big challenge right now. Yeah, I mean, I hear that. I, I think about the families who are calling again, you know, they're calling and they need support. And it's like, well, what if we do something? Is that better than nothing? And I think there's just this finding that balance, right? And, and yeah. you know, for, for every, for every I, I heard a statistic and I won't say it because I don't know that it's actually accurate, but there are far fewer providers than there are a number of families who need support. And, and absolutely. And yeah. In our, in our, um, in our 2020 annual report, we actually cited some interesting data just about the shortage of providers that exist state by state. And the Northeast is actually the one that's, um, that has the most demand. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely shocking. And I think the other piece as well, um, when you think about barriers to quality, um, is also this idea that, you know, when applied behavior analysis first started, you were typically taking data using pen and paper and you're just measuring number of goals mastered. And as ABA has moved into this medical model, there's a uh, more pressure to really showcase 
the quality of the work that you're producing and kind of the outcomes, but doing it in a way that's scalable. A number of goals mastered isn't scalable. And I know that, um, you know, there's been a lot of efforts in the community to really standardize the type of way in which we're measuring outcomes. So I think measurement itself can be a barrier because so many organizations are not even measuring their own impact um, on a scale that can be compared and, you know, really compared across clinics or, or, or patients or populations. Right. I mean, a lot of, you know, to your point about the electronic data collection, it's really hard to compare electronic versus pen and paper. I, I mean, it, it can be done and there are ways to do certain things, but it, it, it becomes a, a very cumbersome task. Um, I, I was going to say, if you remember that organization going under many, many moons ago, then you probably remember the pen and paper <laughs> as well. And, you know, leaving binders in kids' houses and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I won't date myself and say when that was, but yes, I do remember that. Um, and I think about, <laughs> you know, how far we've progressed, certainly as a field, but also, you know, there's still, there's still room to grow, right. And there's still opportunity for us to continue to improve. And, and I love this idea of continuously improving, right. I think that's something we should all be striving for because as we grow and change, the community grows and change, and we've got to make sure we're doing the best we can to keep up with that. You know, to your point, your point, diversity, making sure we're addressing, you know, cultural norms and individual families and, and, and things along those lines. One of the things that's coming to mind for me, Sarah, is um, I'm thinking a lot about the listeners who are either brand new BCBAs, brand new RBTs, looking to become part of the field, maybe are interested but haven't fully jumped in yet. What are some things that they should be paying attention to with regards to quality therapy and programming and and really quality and ethics and how, how those two kind of go hand in hand? I think it's a great question because I think many times students students are not thinking forward about their long-term career. They're just thinking, how do I get my training site hours? How do I get the, the care, you know, how do I get the hours I need to become a BCBA? And I would just encourage students to think really carefully about where you work. Um, I, you know, there's such a thing as poor supervision, and especially when 50% of BCBAs have been certified for less than five years. So you really have this new workforce that's right. eligible to supervise clinicians, but maybe don't have the wisdom or the time to, or, you know, to, to learn certain lessons that, that they can bestow upon you. Um, so, you know, we are actually, um, we actually just launched a practica training site accreditation for organizations that are um, kind of showcasing themselves as providing quality supervision. And so I would encourage you to look for an organization that's accredited, that's really putting that um, training first. And then I also think just like the intake process for a patient, you know, listen to those red flags when you're onboarding as well, when it comes to caseload sides and the training that you receive. Um, you know, I used to teach at the, at the master's level at, at Pepperdine University, and you would be surprised how many students came to me and said, I got hired. And the next day I was in a kid's house. Um, and so you want to just be really, really mindful about what is that first week at your organization look like? What is the first month at your organization look like? Do you feel like they're giving you the tools and training you need to be successful? Because that's the building blocks of your long-term career. And you want to make sure that foundation is solid. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I'm, I still hear stories about that going on today and you know it's 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 a mix of you know heartbreak and a little bit of sadness too right let, let, let's give people the tools they need before they go and provide therapy let's <laughs> help them feel comfortable with you know data collection and the basic founding principles of applied behavior analysis we don't have to give them 
you know, hundreds of years, a hundred year history and make sure that they understand every nuance that there is, but mm-hmm. having a basic understanding before you start work is going to make you better at your job. Right. And I think that's true in any field, but certainly in ours where we're focused on the future of the individual with autism. Absolutely. You're preaching um, to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sarah, where, um, where can, uh, where can parents and professionals and others find uh, more information about the BHCOE and more information about the practicum training sites and, and all of that? You can visit us on our website at bhcoe.org. Um, feel free to look at our resources. We have checklists for the different standard sets that we have. You can also go on our directory and look at um, the providers that are accredited and kind of learn more about them and search by region. Um, and, you know, follow us on social media. We're at bhcoe on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, whatever you prefer. Great. Thank you, Sarah. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate the work that you're doing. Our, our community and and everyone around them needs this. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. For me, one of the main reasons I was interested in sitting down with Sarah Litvak was to hear about their process. How do they how do they give an accreditation to somebody? And it was very fascinating to hear about their multimodality approach, how they're not just looking at reports and giving a stamp of approval, how they're interviewing staff, getting to know leadership, um, talking to families, paying attention to data, reviewing documents. I thought it was so important that we're looking at all those aspects because all of those combined are really what makes a quality provider. And I think that's that's a great indicator for both parents and for staff. Um, The other thing I really liked about it was hearing that their process is evolving and continuously improving. And so for me, what that means is as the field of ABA changes and grows and evolves over the years to come, the process of of the accreditation is going to change as well, which I thought was very interesting to hear and very exciting for us as practitioners and hopefully for parents and family members as well. You can always find us on Facebook or Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback for us, send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care, be safe. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.